0: Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments.
1: Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished.
2: Proceedings will be long and complex.
0: Alright. And we're going to say hi. Hi. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. It's your
1: different view of international justice with me, Jana Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. And we're two journalists with asymmetrical haircuts who like to talk about international justice. And you're here because you're interested in that kind of stuff.
0: And mainly, we've got female guests. We have uh, researchers. We get some activists, some journalists. And they're the kind of people who share our strong interest, sometimes we call it an obsession, with how and why justice happens for atrocity
1: crimes. And today we're going to be talking about judges at the International Criminal Court.
0: Ooh! So let's just try and um, paint a bit of a picture. Can um, kind of very very broad brushstroke. Uh, for many years, there have been a lot of questions about how the ICC operates, and a lot of focus on how the prosecutor and her office is working, and whether she's making the right choices, whether she has enough money, whether she's um, whether she's focused too much on uh, African cases all kinds of things. And then suddenly, here we are in basically in 2019, the whole issue of the judges at the ICC has become a real subject of discussion. So should we explain to start with how judges become judges at the
1: ICC? Because they're a bit of a floating bunch. They're not always the same ones year to year. They have a limited uh, time and they get elected by the Assembly of State Parties And so it's a bit of like the prosecutor, it's a bit of a political game, who gets elected, who gets enough votes, which countries can, can bring candidates. It's also
0: a matter of a very complex system set up within the Rome statute running the ICC, where you have a certain number of women, where you have um, judges who represent different types of law. Uh, They don't all have to be absolute specialists in international criminal law. They have to have certain amounts of experience. Um, And what we've seen over the years, I think, is a variety of qualities and abilities in and experience from from the judges Um, and it's, for me at least, it's been a bit of an open secret that everybody has been wondering are they really up to the job but now this has really um, become a big subject of discussion,
1: are they the right people for the job? Yes, and um, well there's several judges controversies and we'll try to kind of go by them systematically Um, Oh, come on. Systematically. systematically, Yeah, I don't think we'll manage systematically. But
0: we'll touch on a few of them. Um, So the first one um, that's, um, no, let's not say it's not the first one, but one of the ones that has definitely uh, worked its way through all of the variety of mechanisms within the ICC to challenge one of the judges is um, a Japanese judge, Kuniko Ozaki, who apparently asked within the ICC, asked fellow judges if she could have some time off in order to go and be a, a Japanese ambassador elsewhere, just as a particular case was coming to a close. Can you tell us a bit more?
1: she's a judge in the case of uh, the Congolese uh, militia leader Bosco Ntaganda, and, Taganda, and um, the the Case is now kind of nearing its closing. And um, ICC judges, when they're elected, they have to promise to be full-time judges. So you have to uh, ask special dispensation to be a not full-time judge. And the way this worked with um, Judge Ozaki is that she asked compensation to be a part-time judge. And it was granted because the case is almost to an end. And you don't want to switch judges at the end of a trial because... That gets complicated. But it's also one of the things that they promise, isn't it, is to be kind of independent
0: and not to represent any any other interests. And here she's trying
1: to go to become an ambassador for Japan. She asked to be a part-time judge, didn't say why. And then a month later, surprise, surprise, she was named a Japanese ambassador. So then, of course, the defense went up in arms because, first of all, To have a part-time judge is unpractical, but second of all, she is an ambassador, thus representing a country and thus has kind of political interest. And you can wonder if that is uh, compatible with the impartiality that a judge has to be. And it starts to make us all
0: ask the questions about what judges bring with them. Um, in terms of their national interests. Um, in fact, in this case, in the Ozaki case, just as we're recording this, we understand that, that the ICC has said, no, the defence hasn't really got a case to answer that they can't really, really challenge her.
1: But it, it really has kind of set this discussion going. Who it, are these judges? It has. But it also what happened is also that she then withdrew from this ambassador's post because of the stir that it was caused. So there was some um, consequence for her, the direct is She withdrew as an ambassador and now is back to being only a judge on that case. But it put the spotlight on, indeed, how these judges get elected, what they do with their time, what kind of stuff they can do in the meantime. But also um, there was a big question of how honest has she been, how uh, what, what about her integrity if she asked to be a part-time judge and then suddenly she's named an ambassador. That seems like that would be an ongoing process. You don't go from, oh I have nothing, to a month later you're named an ambassador. Then obviously she knew that she was being Considered, t- Considered. And she didn't mention that. So there's a also that whole part of integrity and then uh, yeah, do these judges take their national interests with them on the bench and can yeah. you switch that off?
0: And the same defence team, um, led by the indefatigable Stéphane Bourgogne, who's very good, isn't he, at uh, emailing us journalists with uh, with lots of details of what he's up to, um, has also, uh, that defence team has also targeted another judge, uh, the French judge, uh, Marc Perrin-Prichambeau, who's... Um, They found some old footage of him, or at least they found a transcript and they they asked specifically for the footage to be provided, the actual video of that judge talking to some students in Beijing about how the ICC worked. What was the big controversy there?
1: Well, there he spoke, the judge, the French judge spoke very candidly and it was kind of un. That's diplomatic speak for um, not saying the right things, isn't it? In a, in a, in a way, it's a slightly diplomatic speak for making gaffes, I think, in the way that uh, Prince Philip speaks candidly. Um, but so they found this footage where he's basically saying, oh, Europe pays for the court, but the Africans supply the suspects, which is obviously going into this whole discussion, or is it a neo-colonialist court? And the ICC has got a lot of criticism from Africa that they're only targeting African people. And then to have a judge come out and say something like that is, of course, very undiplomatic and unpleasant for the court that he comes out with that. Then, um, But that's mostly like, okay, this is bad PR, but he's kind of maybe saying what everybody's thinking. On the other hand, a lot of legal scholars on Twitter spe- especially exploded over that he was kind of explaining how cases are done. And he said about one case that we agreed that we wouldn't take any, uh, wouldn't allow any interlocutory appeals.
0: What's an interlocutory
1: appeal? It's when, well, Is it
0: important for us to know what an interlocutory appeal
1: is, let's say? Uh, maybe not the term. But what it means is that f- for, for a lot of things at the ICC, you have to, if a trial chamber makes a decision you have to ask that trial chamber for permission to appeal to a higher uh,
0: instance. So let's say the trial chamber makes a decision that either the defence or the prosecution but mainly the defence doesn't like then and they want to challenge it then um, the trial chamber has to decide whether they might have a good enough point to be able to allow another part exactly. of the court to, to answer it. Exactly. And he said that they had decided between themselves as judges that they
1: weren't going to have any of this. Exactly. And so not even at the point where somebody had filed this request, but at the point where they made the decision that they thought a request might have been made before this. so that's basically saying beforehand no matter what argument people come with we won't allow them to appeal it we will never give permission to appeal it so that's uh, you know legally they have to consider these requests for appeals and they have to consider the reason so you can't say beforehand I'm making this decision and whatever appeals come, I'm not going to accept them.
0: Uh, He's also in the firing line um, that we've seen, again, as we're recording this podcast uh, during the last few days from the defence team in a new Malian case, the Al-Hassan case, which has still got to come to confirmation of charges. Um, And they are complaining that Chambeau is really too close to the French authorities because of some of the other positions he still holds, um, the kind of advice that he he still gives, and they one of the quotes from their complaint is that he's still quote wearing the hat of a French political military advisor. Whoa, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm just wondering how realistic this idea of, of a judge to be completely completely independent
1: is. Well, I think you can you can look at it a different way because in this case of Mirimbo, uh, you can say. Um, He can be independent, but maybe not in the Mali case, because the French government intervened in the Mali conflict. So So maybe he should just recuse himself from that one. Exactly. So the sense is that he could do Colombia or whatever, somewhere where French doesn't have something in the game.
0: Yeah. I'm also wondering, having been through, just as I'm sure you have, having been through um, so many different times in Rwanda cases at the Rwandan, tribunal where defence would use kind of any mechanism possible to undermine the legitimacy um, some of which were were quite good critiques and some of which were less good critiques and I'm, I'm just I'm again wondering I I'm I'm concerned as a journalist that I shouldn't get swept along by assuming that yes this is all right
1: well I think yeah it's, it's obviously the job of the defence to pick apart these things. So I think it shows that they are very good defence lawyers. So I think um, we're going to see it more and more at the ICC because you're now seeing that there's this possibility. And then in the beginning of those international trials, it was more complicated. I think the defense have gotten, in a sense, better at finding these things and, and using all the whole possible arsenal of the tools to get to see if you can get judges disqualified, to see if you could kind of uh, shake the proceedings a bit.
0: In that sense, it's a, it's a sense of maturity of the, uh, the court that people are actually paying attention
1: Yes, I think so. I think the defendant's rights are becoming uh, more and more central in cases. And that means that this is a fair system uh, where we don't have that. In the beginning, it was this idea that whoever shows up is almost... Guilty by default. Guilty by default, because why else would he be there? And then, of course, that's difficult for for defence lawyers. But I think that now it's maturing in a system where, you know, let's see, this is all up for debate. Maybe the judges are, are biased. Not right. biased. Right. You know, if you're a defense lawyer, you would want to make that argument. I'm not suggesting that the judges are biased at the ICC. <laughs> we've got to be really careful of this. Nobody's ever going to talk to us because that's the next thing we've
0: got. We were really, really lucky to be able to talk to a judge about one of the other big things that's going on. What happened was we didn't know much about it. There were a few rumors circulating over the last year that. Some of the current judges um, have a labour dispute with their employers, the International Criminal Court. They're complaining that their pay and their pension rights are not keeping pace with those of other Hague-based judges. You managed to track down um, a judge, a former judge from the ICC, who was prepared to comment on this, so who was it and what did she have to say?
1: Uh, I uh, managed to find a former Botswana judge uh, Sanyi Moinageng at uh, drinks thing and kind of cornered her and asked her about this. Um, We can listen to what she has to say and then we can see because I asked her, you know, how do you as a former judge feel about what this labor dispute is doing for the image of the court?
2: Because this is in the public domain, let me put it this way, ICC judges are employees like any other employee. They're employees like you and me. And I I have not understood, quite understood why they're being criticized so badly for saying, look, can you improve our conditions of work? And as a former employer myself, I find nothing wrong in the judges saying we, we have been, we've been working for nine years, we, our, salary, our conditions have not improved, we have tried to talk to, 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 to the powers that be, we have not been listened to. And I think um, even the people who are criticizing are, 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 are the judges are also wrong. The matter of the judges is so advanced now, it is before the the tribunal in Geneva. And all right-thinking people know that the matter is judice, and they should not be, be talking about it in such terms. And it is also very surprising because this matter is not new. It has been going on for years. So, I'm not saying this because uh, I'm a former judge, but I'm also I'm saying people should tread a little bit softer on the judges. They're human beings. They might be wrong in what they are looking for, but uh, this is labor-related issues that employers should adhere to, should listen to. And I see nothing wrong in the in the judges trying to ventilate their rise. So
1: she she formulates this very much as as a labour dispute.
0: Well, I think that she has some, a couple of good points there that um yes, this is basically a labour dispute, and that's that's certainly a good way of seeing it. And secondly, that, um, that yes, they're human. I mean, and uh, any human being wants to be paid commensurately with, with what they're worth, and wants to be able to, uh, to argue it. That the problem arises, though, that she doesn't seem to understand how badly this is seen. And c- can we explain that a bit better?
1: Well, I think, yeah, the problem is, and, and I've asked her about this, and we'll listen to that in a second as well, is that I mean, she's saying all this in yes conditions, blah, blah, blah. But what she's not saying, or or what we know, is that they get paid €180,000 a year tax-free, which is a big deal in the Netherlands because 30%... Tax is heavy. Tax is heavy. And um, schooling for children is paid. So they have a salary that is huge uh, compared to... um, Near mortals like us. Yes, <laughs> I know. But and that's they're a they're thing. big. But they're a yeah. big. Yes, they get a lot of money, objectively. But their complaint is they're not getting the same amount as judges at the International Court of Justice, which is the UN's highest court, and they get, I think, two hundred and thirty or something. So, so now these ICC judges have asked for twenty six percent increase in salary, in order to to balance themselves up with their peers and of course the argument from mere mortals like us and also a lot of NGOs is like that's a lot of money that you're getting do you really need that much money and also That's a very big salary for judges who have managed in the past 17 years to get only three convictions on core crimes. Like how busy is the ICC docket for judges? Because there's not so many cases ongoing. I mean, at the moment, if you look at the website, it's fairly empty. It's just the Ongwen case has sittings. And yes, they have pretrial things and stuff, but it's it's not a full roster of cases. So you wonder what these judges are doing, or at least I do. But um, I put this to her, like, how what does it look like? Um, people will say, you know, you get a lot of money anyway. And, and this is what she had to say about that. Of course, I, f-
2: from my experience at the court, it's going to be harder. But at the same time, there has to be a balance. It's, these are employees, like all other employees whose conditions are, are are revised every year, if you like. And I don't think that the judges are asking for something that is um, irresponsible. I think there there, there, there has always been need for the judges and their employers to sit and talk. And for me, if that had happened, I don't think the matter would have reached Geneva. And and I, I, I say this with a, with a lot of respect to both parties, but um, what can we do? This is
1: it. What I got from her is that she was mainly also annoyed that as a former judge she seemed to be saying that the judges have tried to talk about this and tried to get their conditions improved and tried to do this within the ICC and then didn't get anywhere and only took it to the uh, to the Geneva tribunal as a last resort and now are getting kind of blasted for um, being unreasonable.
0: What I still don't see from her, and I wonder whether that applies to the majority of judges, I suspect that it only applies to some and not to everyone, um, that they don't see how this is interpreted more broadly, how this plays into a particular narrative about um, who the judges are, what they represent, and whether the ICC as a whole is an effective institution. It's uh, you know it's it's a difficult one, I think, but I think that that they need to understand it will be interpreted in a particular way.
1: Yeah, I think maybe also the the feeling of the judges is that that they have that already so and then and this is fair and balanced and they have all these kind of legal reasons or this legal argument why they shouldn't be making as much as their peers so if we if they just explained it we would all understand and then go yes of course that's reasonable.
0: Or maybe they feel that um, just making this argument it can't get any worse So it's a a watch this space kind of thing, as we say in journalistic terms that we're going to be uh, covering this and maybe coming back to this again. So, you've been listening to Asymmetrical Haircuts, that's me, Jana Anderson.
1: And me, Stephanie van den Berg. Thanks to our editorial intern, Hannah van der Werf, our website guru, Joost van Egmond. Music is by audionautics.com.
0: And we also say thanks to our hosts. We're sitting here in Humanity Hub in The Hague, which is our joint space for co-working with lots of other people uh, who are in the peace and the justice world. And sometimes you get the sound of coffee machines or people going up and down the stairs behind us and it just shows how busy it all is even on a friday lunchtime
1: so if you like this podcast don't forget to give us a rating on whatever you use to listen to our podcast or you can visit us on our website which is asymmetricalhaircuts.com
0: and make sure you check us out on twitter as well speak to you soon bye